Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. And this is Abby Martin. Thanks for joining us again, everybody. Thank you so much. So we wanted to start today's episode by just talking about, you know, a few sort of politicized pieces of entertainment that are going around um, uh, in culture right now. Um, One of them being the Joker movie, which had quite a controversial media campaign um, before it's released, during it's release. Well, actually, not so much during, because once it came out, I think a lot of that negative hype sort of dissipated. But um, basically, it seemed like people were anticipating or almost wishing for a mass shooting event at the Joker premiere, like when it, like on the opening day, which I just found really mm-hmm. strange how much people were hyping up this idea that it was a love letter to incels, that... Um, this movie was going to actually inspire real violence, um, that this movie, of course, was going to inspire mass shootings because James Holmes, the Aurora shooter, dressed as the Joker and was inspired by the Joker to shoot up the Batman screening of Dark Knight Rises, the Chris Nolan film, when in fact, it was actually a miss. Um, a misstatement made by a cop, like a rumor that a cop repeated at a press conference about the Joker, trying to connect it in some way to the Batman screening that the mass shooting took place at. Actually didn't have anything to do with the Joker. His hair was dyed orange. So I would think if you wanted to do something inspired by the Joker, you wouldn't dye your hair orange. You would know enough about the Batman mythology to dye your hair green. So that if that's not a dead giveaway that that version of the narrative wasn't true, then I don't know what it is, but it, you should actually look it up. It's not, he was not inspired by the Joker. He was just a crazy motherfucker. But Abby, you actually saw it. Um, and mm-hmm. you said you felt that sort of both sides of the debate, you know, the sort of the socialists that were trying to promote it as sort of a socialist tome, anti-capitalist tome were wrong. And, and then also simultaneously, the people who were saying it was like an incel love letter that would inspire mass shootings were obviously wrong. So what, what was your whole impression of it? And then also like, what was, the, what was the experience like? Cause you, you know, you know enough about Batman to know if it's like a good representation of Joker or not, or like how it measures up to other Batman movies. Yeah. And I guess spoiler alert, if you, I'm not going to say specifically what happened but if you want to skip ahead probably five minutes in the podcast do so now um if you haven't seen it yet um yeah i mean i thought just at face value i thought it was just excellently acted i think joaquin phoenix is really amazing i think that he absolutely should win an oscar for it um and i think that he was the best joker but that aside it was so overly hyped from both sides so going into it i was expecting i don't know what i was expecting Um, because I had seen, you know, all this polarized debate coming from the sympathy from the incel community, the alt-right claiming it as their own, you know, even like police departments saying they were going to embed cops in the the theaters, anticipating that there was going to be like a mass shooting there. Um, So I, I was alarmed, but then the people that I had talked to that had seen it that are like on the left were like, no, that's, 
completely false. Um, in fact, it's like the best critique of the system I've ever seen. It's just a crushing analysis on like capitalism and like clearly that's what the writers wanted and all this shit. Before I explain like what I thought from it, what did the actual writers and directors say about it? Well, I mean, interestingly, the guy, you know, this was sort of presented. I mean, I follow movie news very closely. So I remember when this was sort of first like the seeded into the public mind. It was like DC is tinkering with the idea of doing a Joker solo movie. And it's like, well, why would they do that? That seems like a really weird idea. They haven't even done a Batman solo movie since the last Mm -hmm. Nolan movie. And that was like almost five or six years ago now. Like, why not another Batman movie? So I was like disappointed. But I remember hearing that it was the director of The Hangover, Todd Phillips, wanting to basically do a Scorsese-esque taxi driver style character study, but about like a fiction, like a comic book character. So the Joker to him would be like the taxi driver, like some kind of like anti-hero kind of character. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, from what I understood, that were the only politics that were in it. Like... To him, it was more interesting to just do a movie about an antihero and to channel Scorsese with a big budget, which, like on paper, I mean that's probably that just sounds like a pitch that you give to like studio heads, where you're like, mm-hmm. hey, I want to make like Taxi Driver, but we'll do it about the Joker, and we'll spend like twenty, you know, like seventy million dollars on it, or the Taxi Driver was like. I don't know, like $5 million or something. So we'll make it this like spectacular movie. It'll connect to the DC universe, but it will mm-hmm. stand on its own. You guys will love this. And then we'll have like a, a high class, you know, actor. So I think the idea that there were politics embedded in it by anyone right, with like right. serious political intentions is not absolutely not the case. Cause the guy who directed yeah, the hangover, yeah. do you see any politics in the hangover? I mean, I think he directed like all three of them and they're all terrible films that have like actually terrible politics and so they're fucking trash. I mean, so I don't know. Yeah, and I are mean, like quite racist too. Like I, I rewatched The Hangover. It was very embarrassingly racist. Actually. Well, yeah. And the, um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Tell, tell us about so, what it was like. I mean, it, okay, it sounds so, like you liked it. So yeah, I, I did like it. And here's why, because Joaquin Phoenix is such an amazing actor and he just carries the whole thing. I think if you were to replace him, the movie would not be nearly as um, poignant or like, you know, emotional. Um, I mean, I wasn't like really emotionally affected. In fact, I forgot about it like the next day and a couple hours later, I wasn't thinking about it anymore, which I think says a lot about just the impact of the movie. I mean, it's a fun watch. Like that's the thing. It's a fun, like gritty watch. And, and he just does a really killer job playing this character. The thing that was really missing the point, I think, from both sides who were trying to like excuse this as some giant philosophical critique on society is that it was not. I won't give away what happens, but like basically just society's falling apart. The Joker loses all social services and he like can't get help. He loses like his medication and you just realize like the system's fucked him over. But instead of him grappling with that and blaming the actual system itself, he just like basically in akin to the mass shooter philosophy where they're just like, it's all about me. I've been wronged and I'm kind of forgotten about. He just kind of takes it out on like everyone, you know, and just kills a bunch of like innocent people as well as some cops, which sparks off this whole like anti-cop thing, anti-rich thing. 
But he even says multiple times in the movie, he's like, I'm not political. I disagree with this. I'm, this has nothing to do with like the rich and or like police. So it's just odd that people took that and ran with it. And they're like, yeah, this is like some really important critique on like the rich and like power structures in society. It's like, that's not what he was saying at all. He was just like a completely depoliticized like mass killer. He was just like blaming society and the fact that people like stepped over him and excusing it to basically just murder people. I could also see the incel sympathetic thing too because he he does like stalk a woman in it and the whole like mantra of people who are on 8chan and living on these forums and stuff who just identify as like, you know, I am an individual who needs to be seen and this is a way that I can be seen and it's like kind of legitimizes the notion that you know you carry out like mass violence and then somehow you're legitimized in society and like immortalized but he this took place this is like a period piece it's supposed to take place in like the 70s right yeah okay so it's it's not like he's using the internet you're just saying like in general yeah 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 in general i can see i can see where people would like it yeah. Um, but I mean, again, it's just like a piece of entertainment. And then I was just thinking, like, even that crazy video that Trump posted where he didn't post it, but it was at some resort, an actual official Republican event. They played that crazy video from, like, I don't know, some James Bond spinoff where he just, like, murders, like, a million people in a church. And then they replaced every single person's head with, like, you know, Maxine Waters and Bernie and NPR and all this shit. I was just like, to me, this is no different than that. It's all very gratuitous and very over the top and it's just kind of like odd manufactured outrage over this as opposed to like we're just so used to and become so normalized just like mass violence and that was like a mass shooting in a church that was just some movie that was just like another movie that's on every other week so I don't know I wasn't really affected by it I think in the way that other people were kind of leaping to explain away in these giant tomes on different articles and stuff like that but i thought yeah. it was you know nonetheless fun and definitely i mean leaps and bounds better than fucking jared leto i guess that's like what stuck in my mind so much is how horrific and destroyed he made the joker's legacy that um, it was good to kind of have a revamp yeah it was an abomination so it was good to have a revamp of someone who is a very good actor and who really took the role seriously yeah i mean i I'm so let down by like every iteration of any DC character on film at this point that I just decided not to go see it. But I do think Joaquin Phoenix is an excellent actor, even though I do, I do believe that he probably was like kind of rapey with some women um, that he had worked with on, on different projects. Um, Casey Affleck and him were named in a lawsuit, a sexual harassment lawsuit a few years ago. So he has sort of a weird history with, with being abusive towards women but that that being said, I can't deny his acting abilities. I mean, I, I can still probably watch a movie with him in it and not let that bother me because, I mean, he is a fucking excellent actor. The Master was an Oscar-worthy performance. I mean, that movie, in a general sense to me, was like one of the closest things I've seen to like a Kubrick-level movie mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a very long time, like in the modern age. So, I, I, yeah. Her, I thought, was really well done, too. What was? I didn't like I didn't like Scarlett Johansson, but I thought her was a really great. Actor. Oh, I, I hadn't seen that. Yeah, in that. Well, I definitely still want to see it. I hope there wasn't a scene in it, and don't spoil it if there was. But I hope there wasn't a scene in it where Joaquin Phoenix grabs a child's Bruce Wayne's face and says, "Why so serious?" and ma- makes him smile. I <laughs> hope that wasn't in it. As like a reboot, you know how like. 
you know how like terrible prequel movies like make like add something in for no reason about like oh wait these characters actually knew each other in the past like in Phantom Menace Star Wars they make it so that Anakin Skywalker like builds C-3PO at his house like why would they even put that in there like you didn't need there didn't need to be a backstory for that Anakin Skywalker actually built C-3PO um anyways but yeah, uh, no, I mean, there definitely was a throwback and definitely a hint to Bruce Wayne and the whole origin story of Bruce Wayne, but it definitely was not that ooh, absurd. Okay. Well, I know <laughs> I like Thomas, I know Thomas Wayne is, is in it and he represents sort of yeah. like the oligarch force in it, but it's interesting. I mean, it's cool that they're doing like our, I mean, this movie was like an R rated DC mm-hmm. comics property. And that leads us into our next topic, which is another DC comics property that people may forget, but one of the first R rated comic book movies the watchman by Zack snyder which somehow got made uh, from like a 150 million dollar budget um after being in production hell for many many years terry gilliam was originally asked to do a movie about it around the time he made baron munchausen and because baron munchausen totally flopped they pulled the project from him so this movie was always like sort of shaking around there Zack snyder finally makes it um it's almost three hours long. I think the theatrical cut was three hours long. Crazy gamble for a studio to take. Um, and then, of course, they changed a bunch of weird things in the movie, um, and as including the ending, which I won't spoil for you if you haven't read the comic book or seen the movie. But they changed the ending from the comic book um, to mean something different. And then they also made it so that it wasn't even really, I would say, even really an adaptation of the comic, it was more like a recreation or like a mimicking mimicry of what the comic book was. So they literally like pull panels from the comic book. There's lines straight from the comic book throughout the script. And in some ways you would think that would make it great, but you, you, I feel like it misses the essence of the story to some degree. You don't feel the emotional weight or the impact of the themes that you do when you read the comic book. So, you know, this movie sort of came and went. I think it almost got a rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, but it sort of has what? a cult following. Are you serious? Yeah, it did. Like I people, it was critics so, were I really it was harsh. Really, really good. Yeah, wow. critics were really harsh on it, and I could understand why to a certain extent. But I think that it's a really unique. It's a, like it's one of those movies that I would almost describe as like an experimental tentpole film. You don't usually see these, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of budget major Hollywood films that are taking these big of risks you know you just don't see it very often and this movie is one of those rare movies that does that that it's like a totally shocking thing like how on on earth did this get made dr manhattan is fully cgi with his blue dick hanging out in the movie like how did they how did they green light this that's amazing I, mean, I know, but also the fact that like the they're just like the anti-heroes where they're the um god what's his name comedian Edward oh, Blake. the comedian. You just said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just the fact that he's like, he kills his pregnant girlfriend. You know, oh, yeah. Like, just like oh, gunning yeah. down Vietnam War protesters is like extremely intense. Well, yeah, let's say it's The great. Boys, the show that we talked about and praised a few episodes ago. I mean, that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for The Watchmen. I mean, they they make it so that basically the concept of The Watchmen, the conceit is superheroes are real, but there's all these political implications of it. And it's like the concept is what if superheroes were in our universe and in the Watchmen version of our universe, there's only one character that actually has superpowers and he got them in like a nuclear accident in a lab. 
and he's kind of like an almost like a Superman style character. But everybody else who's the superhero is just a normal person wearing a mask and a costume. And during the Vietnam War and during all these heinous CIA activities and paramilitary things the U.S. government did in this universe, they used the aid of these masked superheroes like vigilantes to help them fight these paramilitary wars or Vietnam. So in like Abby was just saying, in Vietnam, the comedian is there flamethrowing, you know, Vietnamese people. He impregnates a Vietnamese woman while in Vietnam. And when she stabs him with a bottle for refusing to uh, be responsible for his child with her, he guns her down, a pregnant woman, and then murders her right there in like a bar. This is all the while in this universe, Dr. Manhattan, the Superman character, actually tips the scales for the U.S. military and wins the Vietnam War. So in the Watchmen universe, we've won the Vietnam War. It actually caused an escalation in the Cold War to the point where we're even closer to the brink of nuclear war than we would have been uh, if we had lost the Vietnam War. And Nixon is actually still president and is like on his third or fourth term as president in this universe. And it takes place in 1985. Um, So it's really politically charged. It's really cool. It has so many different themes in it, running through, running through it. So much interesting commentary. It's a really deep story. Um, But the movie, you know, it does its best, I think with the material, um, you know, with someone like Zack Snyder, I guess is capable of, but I do think it definitely loses a lot in the translation. Now we have what, appears to be uh, a new show on HBO that is supposed to be, you know, appears to be, and I'm not going to say that with 100% confidence, a continuation of the same Watchmen universe from the comic book, not the movie, 30 years after the comic book. So it's essentially supposed to take place now in the present, but what would have happened in the Watchmen universe if we went 30 years forward after the Mm -hmm. big event at the end? Mm Mm-hmm. So this show is only on episode two, but it's also really interesting and trying to be just as politically charged as the original comic book was, but all about centering around the idea of race relations and racism and white supremacy and basically these egregious things in American history that were done to black people and which the original Watchmen comic didn't really have those themes in, in terms of specifically about racism, but it did have the sort of the themes of like the betrayal and the American dream being like a myth. And these sort of themes are embedded in Watchmen. So they work in this new show. They fit into place, but I'm curious um, what you thought about it and just like where, you know, where it's going, where the show is going in general. Cause I'm, you know, there it's only nine episodes long and the, and the guy who created it says, this is the final it's only one season. It's not going to be a show. Wow. It's going to continue. Oh so my God. it'll well, be like all, the I comics. I think it's brilliant. I'm glued to it. Um, I mean, starting off with the Tulsa race riot again, like a throwback to something that did happen in this really graphic detail, um, horrifying detail that I feel like I've never actually seen before depicted, you know, these mass no. shootings and riots that have happened in our past that we just kind of sweep under the rug horrific violence perpetrated against black people and this was like the black wall street that was just burned down and i don't know how many civilians died but so that was really powerful to start off the series that way um to take you back to that time that really did happen and to set the stage for what's going on now fast forward i guess a hundred years after that moment and just how surreal it is like basically you know cops 
I guess for the most part, we don't know where it's going to go really without giving away too much. But for the most part, a lot of them are black and a lot of them are progressive. And they're kind of fighting this like white supremacist insurgency cult that, you know, is obsessed with Rorschach. And we can get into the significance of that. But I think it's just really fascinating commentary. Yeah, they all wear the masks. So, yeah, they're all wearing the Rorschach mask. Well, no, the Um, cops also wear what I was saying is the cops wear masks. Right, right. Yeah, because they're like in danger all the time. Um, So, yeah, I think Leslie Lee was saying it's pro cop. And yeah, I mean, it definitely is. But at the same time, it's kind of an alternate universe. It's an alternate reality. I think that could be a red herring, though. Like the, the, So the mm-hmm. show opens up with a scene where a cop in a mask is doing a traffic stop on a guy that he suspects to be part of this Rorschach gang. And he's trying to get permission to pull his gun out of like an electronic mm-hmm. holster in the car. And he's radio, right. radioing into his superiors. And once they finally let him unholster it, it's kind of too late for his situation. But... In it seems like it could be a misdirect because we've are, we're already learning that this mm-hmm. whole idea of like all the white supremacist people you know wearing these masks to conceal their identities and all the cops concealing their identities is that what if these cops are in also in this gang and what if some people from this gang are also the cops or what if some of mm-hmm. these cops are doing surveillance on the gang and are double agents or something. Right. You know, so there could, they're definitely setting us up for that. So I think that it could be a misdirect that the idea that it's pro cop definitely seems like that's what the theme is showing at the beginning. Um, And they're even making it seem like this vigilante black woman um, who used to be a cop, who's now chosen to be a mass vigilante only um, is very like also very trusting of the police. So there, so there's definitely something odd about that and i'm not sure where that's going yet but in episode two we've already sort of seen that things were not what they seemed in the first episode they're already sort of you know being like oh shit they're sort of pulling the rug out from the narrative so i think it's going to continue to go in that direction and i think that's that they're going to show that you know and maybe even the idea of these race you know, these white supremacist gangs that are doing terrorist activities, maybe that that's not even necessarily organic, that maybe it's actually being controlled by someone else. And I think that there's already evidence to support that that's the direction they're going in as well. That it's sort of like a Pied Piper effect, almost kind of like QAnon, um, that there could be like someone sort of controlling or misdirecting these people. Uh, Because they're all based on Rorschach, and even though Rorschach was a reactionary conservative, as written in the original Watchmen comic book, they've distorted his message even more and amplified the more extremist, xenophobic edge of it and made it turn it into a more of like a fascist point of view, um, as mm-hmm. shown by that one 7th Cavalry member's uh, rant about how the gutters are overflowing with liberal tears. <laughs> and he sort of takes Rorschach's rant and makes it like a more racist rant and distorts the actual meaning of it. So I find that interesting also. And I'm wondering if someone like Veet or someone, you know, a bad guy from the original comic book is actually trying to tarnish Rorschach's legacy and make him seem even worse than he actually was. So people, nobody will think he's credible. That could be an element of it as well. So that, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting things being played around with. Right, because Rorschach was the only one in the movie that went to his death 
basically saying that he would tell the truth about what was happening. And so he's the only thread yeah. to what actually happened. Um, and without giving away too much, it seems like they're going to bring that back, um, you know, with like the squid falls and all that stuff. So, yeah. And I mean, politically speaking, I mean, I'm really interested to see what kind of politics it'll be playing with, because ultimately the watchman was anti-imperialist, anti-nuclear war. It was also a critique on neoliberalism and liberalism, like the realism, the Henry Kissinger sort of framework. It was a critique on a lot of different things because Veidt, in the original comic book, even though he's a bad guy, he was also in the real world like the good guy, like the liberal, mm-hmm. the right, good guy. Right, right, And it wasn't just, and I'm not just saying like in the same way Lex Luthor in the DC universe is like the president, but he's also secretly the bad guy trying to kill Superman because in this universe, in the Watchmen universe, he's presented as, it's like supposed to be utterly shocking and unfathomable that, oh, actually the guy who's doing all these good philanthropic things and is like the good character this whole time is actually the villain. Genuinely supposed to be shocking in that way. I think they're playing around with similar themes in this, like Robert Redford is supposed to be president. Right. Um, the well, actual I, I, actor. Ezra Klein is supposed to be press secretary, which I thought was odd. Yeah, and... uh in the backstory, if you read some of the documents that they've released for the show so far, it explains that Veet actually was mostly responsible for getting Robert Redford's campaign off the ground. And he's like the primary donor and all this stuff. So there is a liberal and there is a vast and insidious conspiracy conspiracy at play, as the Lewis Gossett Jr. character says in the last episode. But we don't know quite what it is yet. But obviously, the cops are not good guys these white supremacist terror gangs are not quite what they seem. They could actually be, you know, astroturf group to some extent, or it could be partially manufactured. The people in this show who are talking about false flag attacks uh, are sort of represented as, as dumb people, potentially. But we know that what they're actually referring to, they're right when they're yeah, saying right. that in That's the show's, uni- right. according to the universe's context. So that's the interesting thing they're playing with also is this idea that people who believe these things could be false flag attacks or conspiracies are marginalized as being like these racist kooks. Even in our, our I'm talking about our real reality. Like, oh, if you say, you know, 9-11 is an inside job, that means you're an Alex Jones, you know, to like racist neo-Nazi or, or something like that. Um, it's a similar thing. So I'm really curious where they're going with that. And also, fun fact the writer for the show, Damon Lindelof, uh, his co-writer on Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, Robert Orkey, is openly known as like a 9-11 truther. So there's definitely some references being thrown into this show already, I think, that surround the sort of the cultural milieu of you know, 9-11 conspiracy culture. So that, that'll be interesting to see where they go with that. Well, it's but definitely I hope, be interesting because they had to lend legitimacy to that notion because Rorschach was right. Exactly. And I just really hope that at the end of the day, the politics in the show are smart. Because one thing that worried me, I read a quote where Damon Lindelof was saying that uh, the idea of like Putin on his horse and being like a strongman leader and Russian disinformation is something that they'll be touching on. Obviously, they're not going to be talking about Putin, you know, probably in this universe, but they might thematically do that and i all already think abby this is what worries me i already think the opening scene of episode two maybe actually hints at that 
where it shows the Germans from World War I leafleting the black soldiers, trying to convince them that they would have a better life in Germany because they're not discriminated against. Sort of like how Russian media people hire you know, people like you to criticize American foreign policy. I, that, I, when I saw that, I was like, I wonder if he's going to go there with some kind of like weird things implying that like the Russians are behind this or something. And Alan Moore has nothing to do with the script writing on this, right? No, no, of course not. I mean, he's, yeah, he's never yeah. been involved in any adaptation. I just wonder what he thinks about it because he has really good politics. Exactly. So, I mean, I think, you know, if Damon Lindelof wanted to pay respect to Alan Moore, he would try to align with those politics. Mm -hmm. But I worry that he won't because, I mean, just no one in Hollywood, generally speaking, has politics that good. So, mm -hmm. right. You know, I mean, Regina King is amazing. It's just it's really entertaining aside from all the political undertones that we're talking about right now. I yeah. really encourage everyone to check it out. I'd love to hear what you think about it. I'm I'm super glued to it. I can't wait for the next episode to come out. It's getting really nuts. Yeah, and for anybody who hasn't checked it out, um, if you don't even like reading comic books, but um, you know uh, you you want to check out what the story of the Watchmen is, there's actually a rip of what is called the mo motion comic of the Watchmen miniseries comic book on YouTube. If you type Watchmen motion comic, it's extremely well done, professionally made animated version of the comic book with like a narrate like a voiceover artist who does all the different voices of all the characters and it's it's great you can watch it all pretty quickly i think i mean it's still like something like six hours long but it's worth checking out and you could just sort of awesome. kick back and watch it rather than you know having to focus on reading a whole graphic novel awesome similar to this entertainment discussion call of duty modern warfare i guess is it a new game coming out mike yeah so it's a new game coming out they've done some really problematic things before like depicting the blackouts in venezuela and stuff like that um but they're they're taking some really interesting threads now that are blatantly problematic and my partner mike preisner who we've interviewed before with his uh co-host spencer rapone who runs the podcast eyes left is going to just jump on here and explain how insane this new game is and um, the insidious forces kind of driving these narratives in, in Call of Duty. So Mike's going to jump on right now. Hey, what's up, y'all? Yo. First talk about the latest crazy stuff that came out with the Call of Duty thing. Yeah, well, I think in general, all of the Call of Duty games are problematic. I mean, even going back to the, you know, in 2007, they kind of switched from these World War One, World War Two era games to uh, what they call modern warfare. So they went from historic reenactments of, you know, anti-fascist struggles against Nazis to actually fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan and other perceived future enemies of the United States. Um, but I mean, I think in general, all kind of games that glorify the military and combat and war and everything, um, even if they have a kind of anti-fascist angle, for kids, it doesn't really matter. It still glorifies being in the military and makes kids want to join the military and, and whatever. So I think that the entire history of them is bad. But in 2007, there really was a shift to kind of uh, modern warfare, as, as they call it. And so the, the thing that's going on now, so there's a lot of history there. But the thing that happened most recently is in, in the new modern warfare game. They come out with a new one like every year or so because it's one of the more popular games. And, um, you know, they're also designed to be addictive. And so a lot of people who play this game are kind of playing 
uh, not sleeping and playing it and neglecting their their life and everything to, to play it nonstop, um, which is a, a strategic design of the game to make it uh, addictive and so forth. But anyways, the, the big story is that they, in this new game, they have a reenactment of the Highway of Death, which was a, uh, a major event that happened during the Gulf War where the United States bombed um, not just retreating Iraqi military forces, but retreating civilians. And the Highway of Death was an entire highway that was packed full of not just military vehicles, but buses, vans, people with their entire families and belongings packed into their cars. And the U.S., for no strategic region whatsoever, just obliterated every single vehicle on this highway, killing quite a, a huge number of people, um, retreating military, which is a war crime, but also civilians, which is a war crime. So it was a pretty dark uh, chapter in the Gulf War, you know, the darkest incident of that entire war, I would say. Uh, but anyways, in the new Modern Warfare game, they have the highway of death in it, except in the game, the, it's committed by <laughs> Russia, not committed by the United States. So they took an actual historical event, an actual war crime that took place, you know, in our lifetimes, and just attributed it to uh, the country that we are, um, you know, supposedly the enemies of today. And Mike, there's been other problematic things like, you know, depicting Russia nuking cities as if that's happened, you know, when the U.S. is the only country that's ever done that. And also just talk about the advisors on the game and the um, kind of the revolving door between the Pentagon and this game. Yeah, well, you know, this, right. I mean, this wasn't the first time that a war crime committed by the U.S. was attributed to another country that, as you mentioned, that there's a, one of the Call of Duties from like five or six years ago. They have a, a Russian nationalist working with Iran obtain a nuclear weapon and then just bomb a civilian city with it. It wasn't Hiroshima or Nagasaki or anything uh, as the U.S. did, but it, you know, nonetheless, the United States is the only country in the world to have ever used a nuclear bomb, yet we have our uh, so-called enemies using it in Call of Duty. But, you know, and, and as you mentioned earlier, there's the, the game before the current one where, you know, there's a special forces raid in Venezuela and they, you cause a blackout of the whole city and stuff like that. And so that's actually something that was done shortly after the game came out. Um, and so it was <laughs> like, oh, what's, this is kind of a coincidence. But I think that um, these things aren't just coincidences. And in fact, they, they, modern warfare games actually depicting current and perceived future battles. So, you know, fighting in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, but also fighting against Iran, fighting against Russia, uh, the so-called, and China as well, you know, the, the future wars that we're supposedly gonna be fighting. It's not really by accident. Uh, you know, in, um, I think 2013 was the first time that it came out that the Call of Duty had actually sought out advice from the Pentagon on developing the storylines for the game. So they actually had Pentagon advisors working with them on creating the game. And the, and the crazy thing about this to me is that the, the co-creator of Call of Duty actually said, we wanted to work with the Pentagon so they could help us figure out what the future enemies were going to be. So they're actually admitting <laughs> that they wanted to make the game fighting enemies that the Pentagon said we would be fighting in the future. The only reason you would do that is to start to create war propaganda, to try to start making the public conditioned to be fighting this perceived threat through this game. So then when it actually happens, people say, oh yeah, you know, I play that video game. Let me, let me sign up for the military or, or whatever. So it's kind of a, that was kind of a bizarre thing. And then it, that's when it really started was when they, they said, we want, we want them to help us seek out 
these perceived enemies in, in the game. Uh, because of that, one of the top writers for Call of Duty actually was recruited by the Pentagon, left Call of Duty, and went to work at the Pentagon as like a PR person, like helping them craft the propaganda. So it was like a two-way street. The Pentagon helped Call of Duty make propaganda, and then they recruited the best propagandists from Call of Duty to actually work directly for the Pentagon. Um, they even brought on Oliver North, who uh, you know was a former general who was actually convicted in the Iran-Contra scandal. You know, what the great U.S. crime that led to the death of, you know, thousands and thousands of civilians in Latin America um, and, you know, and other uh, as horrible side effects of that, of that scandal. He was convicted of the crime, Oliver North. They brought him on as a consultant for Call of Duty. And not only that, but they put him in the game and Oliver North actually voices his own character in the game. Uh, General Petraeus has been in the game Call of Duty before as well. Um, and so it is like, you know, the links are very open and brazen. And they're even brazen about the fact that they are prepping people for what enemies they think we will fight in the future. Uh, for whatever reason. There's whole like psyops departments inside the military and Pentagon as well to, so this kind of just goes hand in hand with that, but except way more out in the open, right? Like linking with Hollywood and the entertainment industry to kind of have final draft on scripts or, or storylines that involve US military. Yeah, I mean, y'all have talked about that before. I mean, the Pentagon's role in, you know, in, in Hollywood, and, and that's, that's quite true in gaming as well, in particular with Call of Duty Modern Warfare. That's, that's taking a step further now, too, where it's not just the Pentagon propaganda coming out in Modern Warfare, but this year, the Army actually created an Army esports team and started focusing recruitment on online gaming. And so this Army esports team is a soldiers who are professional Call of Duty players who take this like arcade truck to different high schools and show them, you know, like they go to the big gaming competitions and gaming conventions and festivals. So there's an army team at all of these festivals where it's just, you know, kids teams going in and playing. And so they have recruiters basically working as army esports team players, but they also are doing this thing where they're playing, they have recruiters just play Call of Duty. And, and as you know, when you play, like I don't know, actually, kids. I don't know if you know. So when you're on, like you know, sometimes people, when yeah. I'm gaming, you know, I got my little yeah, headset yeah. on when I'm playing good games like Overwatch. <laughs> um, and I got my little headset on and I'm talking to the people that I'm gaming with, right? People I don't know, people who are just somewhere in the world who are playing the same game as me who, and who are on my team. But now they have army recruiters playing the game. And then so when they're playing Call of Duty with these kids, the recruiters are literally being like, oh, yeah, do you want to do this for real? Like, we could use you in the <laughs> army. Like, maybe you And then, which is actually it's really fucked up because it's a way of getting around, like, parental consent. Because normally if you're under 18, this is all, if you're under 18, a recruiter needs, like, permission to be able to talk to you. They can't just, like, sneak up on you and talk to you. But these kids aren't going, obviously, and asking their parents if they can game with this recruiter. They're just, like, uh, randomly getting placed in games with kids. And so recruiters are use, actually using Call of Duty to recruit kids into the army while they are playing a game that is preparing them for the next war that they're supposed to go fight. Is there a reason in the storyline for this Call of Duty game why they changed it to make it so the Russians were behind the highway of death and not the United States military? I haven't played it yet, so I don't know. I just know it's to try to create the same thing with the Russia, the Russian nationalists like nuking a city and the other one. It's just to kind of create the kind of dark, evil image of this country and like look what kind of horrible shit they would do. But it was just weird because they could have just made up some kind of event. I mean, they didn't actually have to take the exact event that the U.S. committed. So it wasn't are they trying to like rewrite history? Are they like this is what actually happened during the Gulf War or are they like showing something that's exactly like the highway of death now? 
Yeah, like, they're just showing something that's exactly like the Highway of Death and saying, like, can you believe they they killed oh, all these wow. retreating vehicles? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's so weird. Dude. All, I mean, it could just be lazy writing that they're yeah. like, hmm, what can we make Russia do that looks that's really fucked up and evil? They'd be like, ah, oh, yeah. we'll just like take this piece of history and just say Russia did, you know, versus like, um, you know, while, but the admission by doing that is saying, oh yeah, what the US military did is actually really fucked up and evil. The Gulf War is so much... You know, like our, I think we, we have some memory of it, you know, but it was like when we were all kids that the Gulf War happened. And so, you know, I think people who are under 18, you know, even people that are in like their early 20s, they really don't have a real consciousness about the Gulf War. We don't, I feel like they're just assuming that, okay, yeah, it's going to make them look bad to people who are, have some level of political consciousness or some awareness about how horrific the, the U.S. bombing campaign on, in the Gulf War was. Uh, but, you know, they'll assume that the vast majority of people who play the game will have no idea that it's actually a, a U.S. event. It's so insidious and strange that they would do that. Yeah, because that will actually yeah. influence people's, like, historical worldview. Right. And that's the goal. I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing is that the reason they consulted the Pentagon was who should we paint as bad and evil and start doing war propaganda to, to fight? Well, thanks for coming on, Mike, and giving us that. Yeah, happy to. That fact. So, Robbie, I want you to get into this timeline here because another thing that happened that I found really interesting when we were on tour was kind of a reiteration of this fake Syria withdrawal seems like every couple months now, Trump just makes some proclamation that everyone just falls for. Um, he just fires off a couple tweets online saying, you know, things like endless wars must end. And then everyone just kind of is like, oh, my God, Trump's anti-intervention, you know, in terms of Syria, him withdrawing all the troops, which he didn't actually do, which you're going to explain, but just believing it at face value. Right. And then just like clockwork, you have the entire political establishment and media apparatus pushing him from the right, all fighting him, saying, how dare you? You're leaving these people um, at the risk of getting massacred. How dare you abandon the Kurds? Why would we do this? I can't believe it. Blah, 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 blah. Just goes on and on and on. Um, and then he goes and says, look at the Democrats and the deep state officials want me to keep troops endlessly in Syria. And it's just this feedback loop that is so wrong on all sides. So why don't you get into, because this has happened before, and we covered this in the Syria deception on Empire Files about a year ago when he first did this, when he you know, ended up just shifting troops around to Iraq and then basically maintaining a troop presence in Syria to quote unquote protect the oil. So it's happening again, but this time it seemed like with more fervor and outrage from the political establishment and liberal, quote unquote, liberal media. If we rewind back a little bit, this is, I mean, Trump has already announced pretty much almost a year ago now that he wanted to do a full withdrawal of Syria. And he announced that it was going to happen like immediately. And of course, that didn't end up happening because here we are a year out from that and it still hasn't happened yet. But if we go back to March 8th, 2017, this is from Wikipedia. So I just want to remind people that when Trump got in office, he actually escalated the war in Syria against the Assad regime in terms of not just putting more U.S. troops in Syria and doing more U.S. special force uh, special forces activity in Syria, but also like bombing military Assad targets in Syria. So on March 8th, 2017, from Wikipedia, it says... 
U.S. troops, part of an amphibious task force, left their ships in the Middle East and deployed to Syria to establish an outpost. The deployment marked a new escalation in the U.S.'s role in Syria and put more conventional U.S. troops on the ground, a role that, thus far, had primarily been filled by special operations units. By then, there were 900 U.S. soldiers and Marines deployed to Syria in total. So 500 were already there that were special forces, and then 900 were added. And this is like early into Trump's presidency, okay? And then in December of 2018, Trump all of a sudden announces a unilateral withdrawal of the 2,500 American ground troops in Syria, because by that time, that's how much they had grown. There were about 2,500 troops by that point. And this was initially set to take place in a 90-day period and to be completed in 2019. So this was supposed to be like a big deal. Everybody was shocked when he made this announcement. Like you just said, the press started attacking him from the right, that we need those troops in Syria. You know, even though we're already waging war in Syria without troops there years ago under the Obama administration, I mean, we've been doing war in many different ways there for a long time. And whether it's through these proxy forces or bombing campaigns or whatever. But the U.S. later announced in February 22nd, 2019, that instead of a total withdrawal like Trump announced in December, a contingency force of around 400 American troops would remain garrisoned in Syria indefinitely post-withdrawal. So this, this basically marked a return of the open-ended military presence in Syria. Uh, about a month or two after this, in May 2019, The Atlantic reported, quote, that the U.S. had actually sent an additional 14,000 contingency troops to the Syria region since May. Wow. So they, they, they didn't actually send them inside Syria, but in the surrounding areas, like to go inside Syria if needed. Um, officials said to deter the Iranian regime from attacking U.S. interests there. Now... Summer passes. In, in fall, um, and this is just earlier uh, this month, October 7, 2019, Trump announces again that he's withdrawing all the troops from Syria. And he goes on some, you know, anti-war rhetoric kick again, you know, t- tweeting things like end the endless wars and all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Even though the war on terror is still something that he's never criticized I mean, that's nothing, and that's really when you refer to endless wars, that's mostly kind of what the endless war paradigm is at the moment, is the war on terror. Right. But Trump announces that he was going to withdraw the troops, but this time there was a different catch to it, that the plan now was to let a NATO ally, Turkey, take over the ground operations in Syria. Now, people got outraged about abandoning the Kurds, like you said, and outraged about letting a, you know, a country like Turkey that has a very like, sordid and shady record do, you know, uh, take over our role. But again, they're attacking Trump from the right in Syria. I mean, yeah, there's definitely, it's crazy to me to just hand over the Syrian ground operation to Turkey and be like, yeah, Trump's anti-war. I mean, that's like letting a NATO, I mean, it's kind of like working with the French to bomb Libya, um, you know, because they're one of our NATO partners uh, to me. So I don't really understand how that makes Trump anti-empire or this is an affront to empire, but it's obviously on some level still shaking up a lot of sectors of DC and making people outraged 
And then they're again playing the humanitarian liberal card on people, trying to get people on the left and left of center to get all outraged about the Kurds being abandoned and that the, you know, the Turks are going to like commit genocide on the Kurds now. And I don't really know enough, honestly, about the dynamics of that relationship. I mean, I do believe that, you know, there is longstanding animosity between the Kurds and, and Turkey, and there's a lot of complex things there, but it's just very obvious that the media is, is using that as a point to just get us sucked into wanting to st- keep our military there indefinitely. But then when you really keep going with this, um, you realize that it's still a ruse. I mean, Trump is not actually withdrawing the troops. Uh, only a week after this, Abby, um, on October 11, 2019, this is from, uh, I believe this is also from The Atlantic. It's that the Trump administration said Friday it is sending 2,800 more troops, fighter jets, and missile defense weaponry to Saudi Arabia to help bolster the kingdom's defenses after a September attack on its oil facilities. And this was literally the day after he said end the endless wars and all yes. this stuff about how they like less than to a week after troops in the Middle East. And then he's just like sending thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia. Can yeah. you imagine being deployed to Saudi Arabia to protect their oil and this is, facilities? It would be insane. And Mark Esper, the acting uh, defense secretary right now, said that U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia will now uh, equal approximately 3,000 around this time period. So then again, in another reversal... Uh, On October 22nd, 2019, uh, not that long ago from the time we're recording this, uh, less than a week ago, Mark Esper, his defense secretary, said that uh, a week later, or his defense secretary, Mark Esper, said that the troops currently being sent home from Syria that the media was outraged about a couple weeks earlier, you know, that that showing that footage of the Russian soldier taking over that, that abandoned U.S. military outpost in Syria... Uh, that those 1,000 troops that were actually being removed from Syria were actually being uh, sent to Iraq before they go home. In addition to this, an unknown number, but estimates put it around several hundred troops will actually still remain in Syria to protect the oil, says Mark Esper. So the troops remain removed from Syria, only about 1,000 are literally just being relocated to Iraq to add to the already right. 5,000 stationed there um, in Iraq. So this is a perpetual occupation. This is not a a withdrawal of troops. And plus, most of our troops are not in this area anyways. Most of them are in Afghanistan still. So if you really want to talk about ending a real war, that would be the war to do, is is to pull the troops out of Afghanistan. The Syrian, the whole Syrian conflict has been a very bizarre conglomeration of proxy war, um, propping up all these rebel groups, aerial bombing campaigns, that's eventually creeped into a U.S. troop presence there. But there's been a war for a long time between the U.S. and Syria before there were actual troops there. So this gesture of just pulling the troops out of Syria is ultimately meaningless, and then also they're really not being pulled out. So that's the real reality of what's going on. All the outrage is completely disingenuous and and weird. And, you know, I even saw the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, which I know the guy, the people who own... The Grand Lake Theater complex in Oakland, I know they, they have good politics, generally speaking. They share a lot of our politics, actually. But they had a thing on their marquee saying Trump abandoned the Kurds to genocide. Like, that he needs to, like, go back and help the Kurds. And it's like, 
I just, I really do feel like it's a deployed false talking point to trap people into still supporting regime change and occupation in Syria. I mean, there might be a valid argument to supporting some, you know, the Kurds, the Kurds cause on some level. Like, I don't know. I really honestly don't know enough about it, but it's, it's strange when you see even leftists, like these leftist groups actually blocked the Bay Bridge here last week, literally blocked the Bay Bridge during like rush hour traffic to promote the Rabjova project or whatever it's called, this Kurdish resistance opposition force that's literally being partially propped up by the State Department, the Pentagon, and the CIA. So I just don't understand how some of these like left anarchists or activists or whatever rationalize that aspect of it. Like, what what do you have to say about the fact that this is completely playing into on some level U.S. imperialism? You know, I mean, what, what, like, how do you rationalize that? I just don't, this whole thing is really weird to me. I'm not going to give Trump any praise over this either. I find myself very, uh, again, isolated and sort of alone. And it's hard to relate to a lot of the narratives that are going around about this right now. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think let's start at the beginning of your point, which is the troops removed from Syria are essentially only about 700 out of a thousand, uh, and like you said, the remaining are left there to specifically protect the oil. The reason that the U.S. is using the Kurds as their proxy fighting forces is to protect this oil-rich region and to prevent it from, they claim ISIS, but really we know it's Assad, from basically reclaiming his own oil to help rebuild the economy and, and rebuild the country that has been utterly destroyed by this proxy war for the last couple of years. Um, and also this region that the Kurds are present in, so it's 90% of the oil production is there. And a lot of the wheat, which bread is a, is a main staple of Syrians. And so the Kurds have been trying to control the wheat, maintain the wheat production from Assad. And that's another thing that they're trying to use wheat as a weapon. There's this think tank that, of course, is funded by U.S. defense contractors that literally said this in one of their documents. They said, quote, wheat is a weapon. <laughs> um, they're proposing starving Syrian civilians to weaken Assad. So this is still going on. You know, this whole Jesus notion Christ. that like this war is over, that Trump doesn't want, you know, to regime change in Syria and all the stuff like how we've shifted goals. I mean, they're still sanctioning the hell out of Syria. As we know, when Trump got in, he sanctioned the up the sanctions to ridiculous levels. And that is... Um, in effect, just starving out these civilians of all these countries that are deemed enemies. And the wheat thing is a direct kind of policy proposed by, um, and I'll tell you this think tank right now, the Center for a New American Security. And they tweeted this out. They said, they said, wheat can be used to apply pressure on the Assad regime and through the regime on Russia to force concessions in the UN-led diplomatic process. Now, this was just a couple months ago this year. So there is a lot more cynical things going on. Um, I find it really fascinating that anyone who remotely calls themselves a leftist or just a, an anti-imperialist in general, or even an anarchist, can even buy in remotely to the notion that the U.S. cares about the Kurds and they're not completely cynically exploiting them to further U.S. imperialism. I think it's important to just debunk all of this rhetoric and just talk about how absurd all of all of this propaganda is. So according to The Hill, the U.S. military has 70,000 personnel across the whole region. That is mind-blowing. 
I mean, and, and think about the defense contractors that Trump has ramped up too, because I know he's privatizing a lot of these forces. This is including naval deployments. So it just kind of gives you a sense of the surrounding area, how entrenched the U.S. military really is. Other than the whole endless wars must end, blah, 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 another Trump tweet said this, quote, the United States has spent $8 trillion fighting and policing in the, in the Middle East. Thousands of our great soldiers have died or been badly wounded. Millions have died on the other side. Going into the Middle East is the worst decision ever made in the history of our country. We went to war under a false and now disproven premise. Weapons of mass destruction. There were none. Now we are slowly and carefully bringing our great soldiers home. Our focus is on the big picture. The U.S. is greater than I'm ever a before. But when you look at it, you got con artistry at its finest, right? Can I just say something really quick actual, about that? Sure. I, I just found a quote. I mean, this is not a surprise to anyone who's been following Trump's totally all over the place rhetoric and like where he switches positions constantly. But Howard Stern asked him right after the Iraq war started, do you support the Iraq war? And Trump's like, I guess. I mean, he didn't say he opposed it. No, he he totally supported it. Yeah. So he, you know, he turned against it, obviously, like a lot of other people did when it became safe to do it. If he was actually legitimately into the Iraq war, that would have been a controversial stand to make. Um, so any, you know, it's really easy now to say that it was, it's a weapons of mass destruction was a lie. This is why these people use, they know that that rhetoric is powerful and it works. It resonates right. with people. It's like sticking it to the man. Even Greg Gutfield, Abby, he kind of revealed sort of this playbook that I think we've been hinting at that team Trump uses where Greg Gutfield's like, did you listen to that speech today? I don't know, man. If you're a libertarian or even if you're like a leftist anti-imperialist, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to vote for like a Democrat uh, when they're just pushing for war, <laughs> war, war? I got to say, man, that's the most anti-war, anti-imperialist speech I've ever heard. So what? Wow. Uh, if you're a leftist out there, you're not going to listen to that and be like, wow, gee, Trump is actually kind of actually uh, adopting our values. Maybe we should listen to the guy. And I was like, damn, they kind of reveal the fact that they know that Trump is tapping into something that's sort of like crossing partisan lines. It's energy that's like kind of effective in getting people to just buy into his bullshit. So I, I found that fascinating. And here's something else that's fascinating. And of course, we already know Rand Paul is a total fucking jerk off who's been riding, you know, swinging on Trump's balls this whole time, probably actually to the embarrassment of his father, I'm sure, on some level. But Rand was like, great job, Trump. The endless wars must end. This is the best like anti-war speech from any president ever. And he like tweeted out Trump's speech. And so I just read Trump's speech really quickly and I immediately came across a quote that, that I was just like, wow, Rand Paul has a really low bar here for what being against war is. Because here's a quote from Trump's speech. Quote, the last administration said Assad must go. They could have easily produced that outcome, but they didn't. In fact, they drew a very powerful red line in the sand. You all remember the red line in the sand when children were gassed and killed, but then did not honor their commitment as other children died in the same horrible manner. But I did honor my commitments with 58 tomahawks. That's similar to what Trump said actually Great recently. Great anti-war speech, super anti-imperialist yeah. speech. This is Amazing. why it's so funny that people are like, yeah, like like even like people who agree with us on this Ukrainian funding argument, like we're like, yeah, why are we giving money to the Ukrainians? But they're sort of like using that argument, 
Yeah, like why like why should he just hand off money to like escalate war? Like we already know Trump's like not if he doesn't like war. It's like no 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 dude. Trump actually said the day after that scandal broke that Obama gave Ukraine pillows, he's going to give them missiles. He's like throwing his dick out on the table and just bragging about how he's tougher than Obama. You don't understand what you're talking about. He's not anti-war. I just do not understand how people well, keep yeah, getting then, conned over and over again. Right. And then when you look at his actual rhetoric and policy on the ground, it's pretty obvious what's really going on here. As you mentioned, the several hundred troops will remain in Syria to protect the oil fields from Assad, taking back control of them. According to CNN, and I'm going to tell you a shocking admission here that went totally under the radar here, that I was appalled reading. This amount of troops left to secure the oil is located near Syria's oil fields um, at a U.S. base at southern Syria, which is located near the border of Jordan, and is seen by many analysts um, as a curb on Iran's influence in the region. Trump said he's advised for the U.S. to keep the oil, quote, in Syria, adding that the U.S. may strike an oil agreement with the Kurds. Quote, we want to keep the oil. We'll work something out with the Kurds so that they have the money, so that they have some money, have some cash flow. Maybe we'll have one of our big oil companies go in and do it properly. Here's the real kicker, Robbie. The oil fields are assets that have long been sought after by Russia and the Assad regime, which is strapped for cash after years of civil war. Both Moscow and Damascus hope to use oil revenues to help rebuild Western Syria and solidify the regime's hold. In a bid to seize the oil fields, Russian mercenaries attacked the areas, leading to a clash that saw dozens, if not hundreds, of Russian mercenaries killed in U.S. airstrikes, an episode that Trump has touted as proof he is tough on Russia. That action helped deter Russian or regime forces from making similar bids for the oil fields. So did you catch that there, that basically a massacre happened where they're calling them Russian mercenaries? Basically, the U.S. just bombed a bunch of Russians. Yeah, I, heard, I remember hearing this about this. This barely got any coverage. Hundreds, hundreds. This is not the first time this has happened either. I mean, do you do you remember when that we quote unquote accidentally bombed a bunch of um, Russians and Syrian military right after Mike Morrell went on Charlie Rose and said yeah. we should start killing Russians? I mean, yeah, and and the fact that Trump would play into that and tout that is yeah, it just shows how fucking off the wall he is. I mean. Like you said, he could have used the Ukrainian funding thing to ha do a press conference and be like, look, yeah, I did withhold the funding because I was really uh, not wanting to um, fan the flames of this conflict. Like, why are we involving ourselves in this proxy war? He, I mean, if he was a smart person, I mean, but I don't, he's so off the wall and just guided by id and ego. It's, it's like it, to ascribe any values of anti-war to him is just so irresponsible. Yeah. And the U.S. cynically using the Kurds for their plight of imperialism. I mean, this is such an opportunistic, blatant show of propaganda um, to justify a, a, an eternal troop presence in Syria, you know, maintaining this perpetual occupation and just using the Kurds as like a justification for, I find very strange. So 
I am not going to get too much into this. I just heard Ben Norton, um, journalist for The Gray Zone, kind of talk about this at length on a podcast called By Any Means Necessary um, that, that you guys should check out, and I'll link to it in the timeline here. So he goes into it in a really articulate and really in-depth way. But basically, the Kurdish national question is a thing, and here's the, here's the ultimate takeaway. We should support their right to self-determination. Right. There are millions of Kurds living in this area. And how dare us look at the situation through this colonial uh, lens of American exceptionalism and for socialists and so-called leftists to pontificate about why Westerners need to carve up this region and basically claim a territory for the Kurds is bizarre. This is for the Kurds and Syrians to decide themselves. Everything that people are are basically doing this armchair analysis from the U.S. at how this region should be divided into like ethnic and sectarian lines is frankly stunning and kind of like, you know, reckons back to Sykes-Pico where these areas were carved up just according to colonial powers in the first place. So it is very strange that here we are again, you know, um, in 2019 and and somehow this rhetoric is being adopted by a lot of people who claim to be anti-imperialist and i think that you can support the kurdish right to self-determination you can support their right to a state but without us being involved and certainly support the full withdrawal of all u.s troops because there's absolutely nothing good that can come out of any u.s troop presence in this region so that's my small take on it um but yeah, I find it really interesting that this talking point is still leveraged every single time um, the troop question is is raised about like, should we remove U.S. troops? It's like, yeah, the unequivocal answer should be yes, every single time. Destroy yeah. all bases, remove all troops, and support people's right to self-determination without U.S. interference. Yeah, and I also think there's an element of, there is like an element of ISIS has really broken people's brains to the point where I do think even some of these like popular, you know, anti-fascist social media accounts that are promoting sort of the Kurdish militias in Syria, wanting them to be uh, backed or supported, which basically ultimately does mean, you know, supported by U.S. government entities. You would think that would be a strange thing to be ultimately advocating for. But I do think on some level, they can sort of get into this paradigm where they think that because some of these Kurdish militias do espouse Marxist or anarchist or anti-fascist values themselves, and that ISIS basically are fascists, that it's like it somehow is some kind of noble cause to get behind. There's just something just so strange about how strong that undercurrent is, because ultimately it is like a, a U.S. government funded and supported thing. So I, 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 I just find it very striking um, how that's so prevalent. Um, and, I mean, and you uh, can support, you can support their goals and aims. And, you know, I, I do agree with them, their philosophy, like they, a lot of them, but again, you can't like blanketly generalize all Kurds. There's different factions and you can support the socialist aspect of them and support their self-determination. But I don't understand why that just means that you have to support like the CIA being involved and using them as a proxy tool, because that's what yeah. the, the CIA does not give a shit 
about the Kurds. Talk about the idea of like talking, taking blood money or like being compromised. I mean, what's more compromising than letting yourself be reliant on the CIA or Pentagon, especially under an administration like the Trump administration? You, that needs to be dealt with. Like if you are one of these activist organizations promoting that idea, like you need to consider what you're promoting and, and why that need, discussion needs to be opened up more. Like that needs to be reconciled with. And it ultimately almost might have to admit that it is like a lesser of two evils argument. It's like in this case, maybe the CIA is actually the lesser of two evils versus the Kurd struggle against ISIS. Like that's ultimately well, also, what you might be saying. So Yeah. And you have to admit that the Pentagon's going to turn on you. You know, it's like once you're not useful to them, so it's like relying on the U.S. for weapons or any sort of military gains is problematic in the sense that like they're going to exploit you and use you and throw you away when when they deem necessary. And so it's problematic just to, to be in, in that position. And yeah, it is kind of crazy that Trump would sort of allow Turkey to take over when they when they're obviously going to fuck with the Kurds. But at the same time, like we've seen developments where now there are actual factions of the, these Kurdish militias, the YPG joining up with the Turkish military fighting against ISIS now. But again, I don't know enough about the dynamics to say that there isn't legitimate fear that this could explode into like just a regional conflict between the, the two of them. But at the same time, it doesn't appear that that's happening right now. Let's wrap up the episode by talking about the murder of al-Baghdadi, another targeted assassination. This guy was uh, the leader, quote unquote, leader of ISIS. So the U.S. just took him out in this um, commando raid, special operation forces of, I guess, a hundred person team using like also like a dog that Trump um, is tweeting like Sick. these doctored photos of himself giving a dog like a medal of honor um fuck yeah and dude this is i'm so fucking it, stoked yeah dude aren't you happy yeah they ISIS smoked him over, dude robbie bag daddy got smoked fucking him smoked. Out, dude dude he's a represent reprehensible Ladies and gentlemen human. what are you one of those liberals who's gonna complain and try to get on like a high horse and say you're not happy that this disgusting monster got murdered dude what are you one of those fucking idiot liberals like fucking like moron he's dead dude we fucking took him out bro Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. He's a monster. He is a monster. He is an animal. And I think it's extremely healthy to celebrate and feel elated when a manufactured bogeyman of a U.S. A military conflict gets killed. I think it's extremely healthy. And I think you should share in that elation. And that's, that's a normal human emotion to get excited about something like that. Drink from the blood goblet. Let's all drink from the blood fountain and celebrate another extrajudicial assassination of someone. You know, like Noam Chomsky said, what right do we have to kill anyone anywhere? And again, like the fact that this missing context is out of the conversation, how ISIS arose out of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, al-Baghdadi formed a militant group literally as an insurgency against the occupation. In 2004, he was detained and held in Abu Ghraib. So to me, that's really interesting. Wow. So he might have actually been like sexually humiliated or like tortured by... Who knows? People. Who knows? Because we know everything from actual CIA torture and stress positions that actually resulted in real deaths 
all the way from that to like just like regular low level prisoners just like fucking around by like touching prisoners dicks and making them like masturbate in front of each other i mean there was everything going on there so who knows what kind of torture or humiliation he experienced yeah if you want to talk about how the u.s government creates terrorists i mean this you can't have a more direct example than this but Robbie, all that matters, like Trump asserted in his little White House press conference, he said he was whimpering and crying like a baby before detonating his suicide vest. And he's like, he spent his last moments in utter fear and total panic and dread, terrified of the American forces bearing down on him. He died like a dog. Um, and then officials came out and they're like, this isn't what happened at all. But Trump apparently just wanted a tough speech. And so Stephen Miller just wrote all this crazy shit in his speech and added all these ridiculous details. But Robbie, back to like how stupid just liberals are and, you know, all of these like so-called comedians and late night talk show hosts and all this shit. Like what they think is the big gotcha from this is comparing Trump's speech to Obama's when he killed bin Laden. And look how different it is. Look how uncouth and degenerate Trump is compared to the distinguished businessman that Obama was talking about, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. That's where we're at. Yeah. And even in some, some really weird uh, takes from even neocons like Max Boot taking the Bill Maher classic approach, acting like, oh, actually, no, Big Baghdadi wasn't a coward. Trump's wrong because Baghdadi blew himself up. <laughs> <laughs> How weird is it to see someone like Max Boot taking the Bill Maher line from 9-11 where Bill Maher was saying that the 9-11 hijackers weren't cowards because they blew themselves up. That's so unusual. It's super, super weird. I mean, Obama, his speech about bin Laden is also weird for a lot of different reasons. I don't know if people remember, but like, it seemed like Obama wasn't sure that we got him. His, his body language, his behavior, that 60 Minutes interview where the guy is like, did you see the pictures? And he's like, yes. And he's like, what was your reaction? That it was him. It's like, what? That was your reaction? The, yeah, that it was seeing him. the pictures? Wait, you weren't already sure that it was him? Like, I thought you had the most sophisticated intelligence apparatus in the world. Seymour Hirsch claims that the reason why that we never saw the photos and that why, uh, you know, the story was different is because they canoed his head. Like they shot him mm. like point blank with like an assault rifle in the head. I mean, who knows what actually happened, but that whole thing was really strange that they buried him at sea. That Zero Dark Thirty was kind of like the official story of what actually happened. The whole thing was strange. How fucking dumb is that? I just remember this moment because Bin Laden was like, you know, at large for God knows how long and the whole world had been shaped by 9-11 and we were in this perpetual state of warfare all justified by this like boogeyman that was out there and then all of a sudden we wake up to the news that bin Laden's dead and you know given the fact that we saw Saddam's sons just like riddled with bullet holes like photos being circulated on the news and stuff it was just like it was just strange that we were like wait bin Laden was buried at sea in accordance to his Islamic faith that's really interesting. And then, um, not that I'm saying that that didn't happen. It's just really bizarre. It's like, why would you give a shit about that? And here we are today, Robbie, where the U.S. military threw the body parts of al-Baghdadi in the ocean. And they said, quote, he was afforded religious rights according to Islamic custom. Why would they do that? <laughs> like, why? 
<laughs> you never heard it's of that custom? It's so Abby? strange. <laughs> you throw the person's dismembered body parts off of a boat. It's an Islamic. It's it is according to Islamic uh, Muslim tradition. <laughs> I do it every day. I do it every day. I mean, the bottom line is that this will do absolutely nothing. This is a hydra that grew out of the vacuum of U.S. foreign policy, occupation, bombing, and torture. And every leader that's taken out will be replaced by another person. And so it's weird how artificially boosted these leaders are. And then when they're taken out, people like just celebrate and drink from the blood fountain. And it's like, this is not stopping anything. And the only thing that will stop terrorism is for us to stop committing terrorism, stop the occupation, stop the bombings, and stop the fucking wars. Yeah, and stop all this military presence and meddling all around the world. I mean, our intelligence agencies are probably doing some insane shit constantly that we have no idea about. Uh, unfortunately, now we've had we have this reductive sort of toothless anti-war narrative that is very bubblegum pop to latch onto, which is just like end the regime change wars. Well, we haven't really effectively done a regime change war since Libya, and that was not quite a regime change war in the traditional sense. It was a joint NATO bombing campaign with a ground proxy force of rebels and some special forces. Um, right. So what the actual paradigm now is the war on terror. So to be actually re- truly anti-war, you have to be against the drone war, um, these endless excuses to be able to have our military going in and out of all these countries to conduct attacks we need to go back to the at least the idea of declaring war before we send our military into another country. But now we can just send our drones wherever we want, extrajudicial killings. We don't respect the sovereignty of any other nation now. Um, that's all stuff that, that, that needs to be folded into that actual anti-war argument. And we're just not really getting that anymore. I mean, it seems like it's popular to act like you're just like tired of war. Like even like I was saying in the last episode, Sean Hannity brings on Tulsi Gabbard and he goes on a rant about how disgusted he is about war and how much Hillary is a warmonger and how much it disgusts him that Hillary is willing to send all these men and women um, to die for no reason. And it's just like, what are you talking about? You were the biggest Iraq war cheerleader. The fact that Sean Hannity would try to be like use cool points and act like he's anti-war is shocking, but not surprising. Like that's to the level we're at right now is that people know that it sounds good and it's popular and it resonates with people to act like you're sick and tired of war and also to act like you had nothing to do with manufacturing consent for war, which Sean Hannity was instrumental in, which Ann Coulter was instrumental in. Same with Tucker Carlson. You pro-war neocon piece of shit. I'll never forget that shit. Well, that's a good part to wrap it up. Uh, Let us know if you agree with us on the SoundCloud (laughs) timeline, um, on our social media, um, if you enjoyed this episode. And we still have uh, another episode coming up real quick about all the PG&E rolling blackouts, them taking the entire state hostage, the fires, um, you know, all these revolutions going on all over the world. I know that I mentioned that I have a compilation of horrible Elizabeth Warren material coming up. Stay tuned for that. There's so much that it's going to take quite a bit of research to get that together. So that is still on the shelf. Stay tuned. Lots coming up on Media Roots Radio to catch up on. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to support us, please go to Media Roots Radio on Patreon and throw us a little bit of love. 
$30 a month will get you a custom sticker pack with a bunch of cool Media Roots Radio stickers, vinyl, very high quality, as well as my custom art stickers um, that I hand pack. So check it out. Throw some love. Thanks so much for your support. And again, it was amazing meeting all of you on our tour. Um, Really appreciate all of you coming and uh, showing support for the film and also Media Roots Radio. And uh, I usually don't do this on this podcast, but I haven't released any music in five years, but I will have my first piece of music coming out in in the past five years. Uh, It's coming out on the Katabatic label. It's going to be a five-track EP, and it's going to be out in the middle of November. And it will also be a free download. So um, definitely check that out, and I'll post about that on social media when when it's out. One last plug is that we have... uh pre-sale dvds for gaza fights for freedom if you want to buy them individually or in bulk um, you can check that out now on our shopify page for empire files also the the um cool original soundtrack for empire files gaza fights for freedom is up online you can check that out check out my brother's music it's amazing um where can people find all of your music is there like a- uh you can go to fluorescent dash gray dot bandcamp.com and I just actually recently posted a condensed version of the Very Heavy Agenda soundtrack um, that has all of the uh, physically modeled um, synthesizer-only stuff on it. So, um, And I'm also going to put out another album of of all stuff that's all physically modeled only with some interesting backstory behind it. I'm going to release it simultaneously with a, a series of mini documentaries that go into the Bay Area history of some synthesizer pioneers who are barely known about. Um, most people know about, you know, um, Bukla, Don Bukla's from Berkeley, modular synthesizer creator, John Chowning, the inventor of FM synthesis, um, is from Stanford. Um, but most people don't know about these guys. Um, one of them's name is Julius Smith. Um, and some of these other guys who helped pioneer a different kind of synthesis that basically recreates real sounds in a really realistic way. It just never caught on as a gimmick or a technology that people were interested in. And it sort of laid dormant for many, many years. But if you're interested in just weird, you know, art, computer aided, created art, you'll be interested in, in just learning about how this technology works. Um, it's very fascinating. And it's also just sort of an unexplored sort of old piece of Bay Area history that I think uh, people would be interested to learn about. So stay tuned for that as well. Sounds awesome. I can't wait to see that. When is that coming out? Um, I'm probably going to release the first one um, in January or late December. Mm-hmm. That's going to be when the album comes out. So the album's going to come out like in early 2020. Um, and it's going to oh. be a full-length album. But the material I'm about to put out is actually like pretty... It's not... I wouldn't say it's dance floor material, but it's like kind of electro, a very, very kind of synthesizer heavy electronic music kind of classic little bit apex twin inspired stuff uh drexia inspired um but yeah people people will dig it i think get your creative juices flowing can't wait man it's gonna be awesome thanks so much everyone for listening uh thanks for supporting and we'll talk to you next time catch you on the flip side dude if you like what you heard today and you'd like to support media roots radio please do so at patreon.com slash media roots radio take care